We hope you like this Resurrection Oakland Church podcast. Unauthorized use of any part of this copyrighted material for redistribution or duplication is not permitted without prior consent from Resurrection Oakland Church. To learn more about our church and its charity and mission work in and around Oakland, California, please visit our website at www.resoakland.com. days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen, until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written that the Son of Man, that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, And they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them, and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, What are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell to the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked the father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can... All things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, 
and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Uh, as Brent said, my name is Crawford Stevener, and I'm the RUF campus minister at Stanford. It's a real privilege to be with you here this morning. Uh, let me begin with a word of prayer. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we thank you that you have gathered each and every person into this room, into this space uh, this morning. And you make amazing promises about what happens when your word is read and preached. You say that it does not come back to you empty or void, but always accomplishes its purpose. And so, Lord, we ask that you will accomplish your purposes with us through your word and by your spirit this morning. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we actually read two passages of scripture just now, in case you didn't notice the longer reading there, one connected to another. And I want to orient us to our passage this morning based on the topography of the, of the two scenes that we just saw. The first was Jesus up high on the mountain, on the Mount of Transfiguration. And then the next scene is after Jesus and his disciples have descended into the valley, where he begins inter interacting with the, the remaining disciples uh, and the crowds surrounding them. And I think it's really significant for us this morning to consider uh, why these two passages are connected to each other and what it means for us uh, this morning. So I want to begin with the first, up on the mountain, and then I want to move uh, down to the valley. So first, on the mountaintop, we see the radiance of Jesus Christ. Jesus has led Peter, James, and John, a subset of his 12 disciples, up to a high mountain. Now, many legends throughout history start this way with a, with a pilgrimage up into the mountain, maybe with a, a journey to sort of find an oracle or to seek a guidance or to kind of find something out about yourself. And Jesus is doing this with his three disciples, bringing them up to the mountain. And something important is about to happen. Something's about to go down. And it does, the, te the text tells us in verse 2, it's kind of an understated sort of way. It says, Jesus was transfigured before them. Now, what does this mean? Well, Jesus, uh, who came in the form of a, of a human being, you know, was a, was a Middle Eastern uh, man here, and he's up on the mountain, and all of a sudden, for a moment during his earthly ministry, verse 3 depicts this idea that, that the, the veil of his humanity is lifted, and, and there's a sort of privileged uh, moment that Peter, James, and John get to experience where they see Jesus in his full glory. They see the, the Son of God in power uh, revealed to them, shining like a star. The passage says that, the, that his clothes were, were shining so bright, like brighter than any bleach could bleach them. Uh, it, was, it was this radiant, glowing splendor, and it must have been a, a completely jarring sight because the passage says that the disciples were, were terrified. And so in some ways, the, the transfiguration, this, this moment on the mountain, serves as a critique of our impoverished view of 
of the glory of Jesus? Uh, are we seeing Christ for, for who he really is? And that's a question for us to consider this morning is, is how big is your Jesus? Is Jesus uh, a person in your life that is challenging the way you think about things? Does he reorient uh, your life, your sense of purpose, your identity, your mission? Or is he just kind of like, you know, the cosmic genie or a yes man that you bring your wishes to and hope that he can kind of sprinkle some of his blessings on your life? Now, Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration uh, reveals to us this, this God of glory that demands, not only invites, but demands your worship and your attention and your devotion. He's not just a rabbi, like the passage says in verse 5, but he's the son of God in power. Now, if you're anything like me, uh, you probably spend most of your day thinking about what you need to do and, and sort of your own things that are on your task list. You think about ourselves and maybe our own self-importance. Yet, when we feel overwhelmed or burdened, maybe you got some time over the holidays, we want to find rest or reprieve or joy. Often, we take inspiration by getting outside of ourselves and trying to sort of see something that, that's, that's worth wondering about, that's worth worshiping. Maybe, you go, maybe you're an ocean person, you like to go to the coast, go to Point Reyes, go down the one if it's not flooded. You uh, go to the mountains, maybe you're a Tahoe person, maybe you make it into a, a national park and see El Capitan. Maybe for you it's just stepping outside and looking at the night sky and you remember what is humanity that God is mindful of us, as the psalmist reflects. Uh, I read recently that the U.S. tourist industry uh, says that Americans spend $750 billion to forget about ourselves every year with some sort of travel or leisure activity. We are desperately looking for something to capture our imagination, to take our breath away, to get us outside of ourselves and to look to something bigger than us. And, and the reason is, is you are made to worship. You are made to behold something glorious and I think as we see Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, we're prompted to think, what if Jesus is what we were made for? Have you seen the radiance of Jesus Christ? And if you're here and you've been following Jesus for a long time, does, does Christ ever take your breath away anymore? And your spiritual journey is, is part of your practice to cultivate an, an enjoyment and an amazement in who Jesus is? Now, for me, that's a, that's a hard thing to do. And one way that we can actually do this and appreciate the glory of who Jesus is, we can't beam ourselves to that mountain, but we can see who Jesus is in the context of the story of the Bible. And our passage actually hints and demonstrates this a little bit with the appearance of these other biblical figures on the mount with Jesus. You see, you see Moses and Elijah appear while Jesus is being transfigured. Now, if you were to do like a Mount Rushmore of Bible figures, Moses and Elijah would definitely be on it. They're big deals in the Old Testament. Moses was the leader of God's people during the time of the Exodus. Uh, the Israelites were in bondage and slavery in Egypt, and Moses led them out of Egypt through the wilderness. He has his own pilgrimage onto the top of a, of a holy mountain where he has a, a moment with God and where he receives the Ten Commandments, and he gives, them the, the, he gives God's people the law and the sacrificial system. Elijah was a preeminent prophet 
in the Old Testament, and God spoke to him about being the one that would come to, to talk about the restoration of all things. And in Jesus' own ministry, when he refers back to the story of the Bible, and when he refers to the scriptures, he gives a summary statement where he refers to it as the law and the prophets, to Moses and Elijah. Now what happens when these two famous, uh, important biblical figures appear on this mountain while, while Jesus is being transfigured, he's shining brightly? What's going on here? Well, I want, you to, I want you to think about this. Peter, one of the disciples, uh, he, he's kind of this disciple. If, you, if, you've, if you've ever read the New Testament before and you're reading through the Gospels, you tend to notice Peter is always like quick to act. He's blurting something uh, out of his mouth. He's more of like a fire, ready, aim, later person. He just kind of goes for it and jumps in, and I love that about Peter. And so these like apparitions of Moses and Elijah appear next to Jesus, and, and he's like, let's build some tents and bow down and worship. And so there's this like construction project and a worship thing, and all kind of happening all at once out of his mouth. But instead, this cloud descends on the mountain, and it envelops the whole scene, and this voice booms out from heaven in verse 7 that's like, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. And then in verse 8, it says, suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. So stick with me. You've, you've got three people. You've got this cloud that comes. Uh, there's a voice from heaven booming out, and now just one. What is this talking about? Well, Jesus is the fulfillment of all the promises given to Moses and Elijah. Jesus is the one who comes not to just deliver his people from slavery in Egypt at one moment in time, but slavery from sin for all of humanity. Jesus is the final sacrifice. Jesus is the restorer of all things. Elijah was just the messenger. Jesus is the one who has come to make all things new. He is the truest and, and fullest revelation of God. All of our deepest longings are met in Jesus, which is why at the end of the scene, everyone else disappears. And we're left with the last words of verse, verse 8, Jesus only. It's all about Jesus. Now, most of us tend to think about our lives as, as like a pie chart and where you give kind of one wedge of the pie to your work and you give one wedge of your pie to family and you give some percentage allocation to uh, maybe recreation or, you know, or, your, or God. And like you kind of find a different place for everything that you think is important in your life. Everything's got a spot. Everything has a place. What I want you to consider is as you see Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration revealed in all of his glory, is what if Jesus is not just a piece of your life? What if he's not a slice of the pie chart of your existence? But what if he's more of like a spotlight or a flashlight that's illuminating everything else about your life, your mission, your purpose, how you navigate all of life? What if instead of fitting Jesus into your life, um, you are defined by your relationship to the Lord Jesus. Well, this is what happens on the top of the mountain. When the three disciples are, are overwhelmed by the supreme glory of Jesus, and maybe you've had a moment like this before, maybe, maybe you've had a powerful encounter with, with God where, where you really experienced the closeness of Jesus, 
And maybe in this moment you felt like, this is what I've been looking for. But for, for many of us, it's hard to stay on the mountain. And so I want to ask you this morning, what are you looking to, or who are you looking to, to fulfill your hopes, to fulfill your dreams? Because what I want you to see is in the transfiguration story, it shows that Jesus is the fulfillment of all other stories. All of our stories find their end in Jesus. He is the one you're looking for. And this is significant for you as you try to kind of understand the meaning and purpose of, of even your new year in 2024. We don't understand ourselves without contemplating who Jesus is because Jesus is not just a piece to fit into our lives. He's not just a slot in your week on Sunday morning here. He's the radiant son of God in power who you are made to worship and behold his beauty. To see him rightly frees you. It frees you from yourself where you can worship. If he really is a new Moses, if he really is a new Elijah, he has come to restore all the broken aspects of your story, of your life, and of this city. And we get a glimpse of this. We get a little glimpse of this on the top of the mountain. And it's beautiful. But I love how the Bible is so painstakingly honest about the human experience about what it actually looks like for you and me to follow Jesus in the real world. Because right after this mountaintop experience, we are taken down into the valley. And that's why I wanted to read both of these passages together and consider them with you this morning. Um, because these passages really complement one another when we think about what does it look like to follow Jesus. There's a painting, actually, of this scene in the Vatican by a Renaissance great master, Raphael. It was the last painting he ever painted. And it's really interesting because it's titled The Transfiguration. You can go look, at, look it up later on your phone. Um, it's titled The Transfiguration, but rather than it just be like, it's not just a zoomed in painting of Jesus on a mountain uh, with his disciples. It actually is like split halfway the composition. Part of it is Jesus on the mountain. And the other part is this dark shadowy moment where there's the other nine disciples down at the bottom in the valley arguing with one another, as the text said, about how to cast this demon out of a demon-possessed boy. Up on the mountain, it's shining and bright. Our, our faith is, seems so strong because God seems so near up on the mountain. But down in the valley, our faith feels so weak because Christ seems distant or maybe even irrelevant. And so in order to make sense of what's happening in the scriptures down here in the valley, I want us to look at the story of the healing of the boy with the evil spirit from two different people's perspectives. I want to look at it from the perspective of the remaining nine disciples who didn't get to go up on the mountain. And I want to look at it from the perspective of the father of the demon-possessed boy. So first, let's talk about the disciples. There's a crowd gathering around the, the nine disciples who didn't get to go up on the mountain with Jesus. And there's Jewish scribes there that are experts in law and religion and they're arguing with the disciples over theology or politics or all kinds of things. And, a, and in the midst of this kind of chaos, a desperate man with a demon-possessed boy shows up. He's looking for Jesus. He sees the disciples. He assumes Jesus would be there. He's not. And the disciples, they can't cast out the demon. They're supposed to be able to do this. Jesus has invested them with his authority and his power, but they couldn't do it. It's like they lost their disciple superpower. It's like that scene in The Incredibles when Elastigirl can't stretch because it's like too cold, if you've seen that with your children. 
They, they don't have access to the thing they're supposed to be able to do. They're, they're not able to, to cast out evil in Jesus' name. It's not working, and there's frustration, and there's chaos. And why can't the disciples do this? Why do they lose their power? What's going on down here? Well, well the disciples in the valley below had begun to rely on their own strength, on their own accomplishments. You have a problem with your boy? We can fix him. We know the proper theological answer. We have been with Jesus, the rabbi. He has taught us what to do. We're on the right team. We have the right language. We have a track record of spiritual success. We're in positions of ministerial leadership. These type of things uh, in our passage really actually surprisingly exhibit what I want to call a weak faith. You see, a weak faith relies too much on history. It relies too much on accomplishments in the past, on our own competency, on our own spiritual resume. Where I'm a campus minister at Stanford, this is a campus, a place that cries out for success, for accomplishment, for hard work. And I have to remind students all the time that the surrounding culture bleeds in to their spiritual lives. And that's true of the Bay Area at large, isn't it? I mean, this is a place that, that knows how to work hard, that hustles, that has ideas and visions and dreams. And I want you to notice that even Christ's most accomplished disciples don't have power in themselves to deal with spiritual problems, to deal with forces of darkness. It actually shows how incompetent we are for spiritual success without Christ's power without Christ's help. This little episode shows what religious people acting out of their own strength looks like. You know what it looks like? It looks ugly. There's bickering, there's infighting, there's chaos, there's pain, there's no healing. I mean, Christians can be some of the worst people. Some of you in this room's main objection to Christianity is Christians. And that's why you don't want to identify that at work, or that's why you're not sure this place is for you, and we get that. They don't, they don't seem any more at ease sometimes, Christians, than other people. They don't seem any more helpful than other people. This is what it looks like to solve spiritual problems in their own strength and power without petitioning Jesus. Let me ask you this as a, as a community here at Resurrection Oakland. I mean, do we act in Christ's name from our own power, or do we allow ourselves to be vessels, to be jars of clay, where Christ can act through our lives of faith and prayer and service to our God and King? Because it's one thing to kind of mentally know the truths about Christianity, but it's another thing to believe the gospel and live your life in light of the good news of who Jesus is and what he's doing in you and through you for the life of the world. Because weak faith relies on your resume. It relies on your own strength. And this is one of the most dangerous things for Christians who have been following Jesus for a long time, if that's you here in the room. It's, easy for, it's an easy thing for pastors to do. It's easy for anybody, a community group leader to do, to assume that we can rely on our own history with Jesus, our proximity to spiritual things, and expect that to be enough. Maybe you came from a Christian family or you've been to church all your life or you've read through lots of the Bible together. Look what these other nine disciples had to learn at the, in the valley. 
that previous success in ministry and spiritual things was not a guarantee of continued success. They had not been given some sort of superpower that was intrinsic to who they were. Rather, the power of God needed to be asked for, petitioned for, sought after, in humble reliance through prayer and faith for Jesus to show up. If you want a real and vibrant relationship with God, if you want Jesus to show up in your life and in your city, you cannot just live off of your history. It's a daily thing. Now, the reason the nine disciples were not able to cast out the demon is actually stated in the passage at the end of the story. Uh, Jesus tells them, he said, this kind, this evil spirit, can only be driven out by prayer. Now, again, I, I minister in a university context, and so students come in and occasionally take religion courses, and one of the most classic assignments a professor likes to give in a religion course is to, is to compare passages in different aspects of the Bible and, and show how they contradict each other. And so this story is told three times in the Gospels. It's told um, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And in Matthew and Luke's story, Jesus says, that, uh, this can't be driven out because you don't have enough faith. And here in this man Mark, what we just read, he says this spirit can't be driven out uh, because, because uh, this kind can only be driven out because of prayer. Now, some people will say, well, look, look at the Bible. It's contradicting itself. They didn't get their stories right. Over here, Jesus says one thing. Over here, he says another. Now, that's not my view. My view here is that there is a, there is a particularly clear connection between lack of faith or weak faith and lack of prayer. Weak faith doesn't pray. The opposite of a praying person is a self-sufficient person. So, you know, our culture in 2024 now, I mean, lends us to being some of the most self-sufficient people in the history of human civilization. We don't even need someone to take us to the airport anymore. We can just call an Uber. What do I need people for? What do I need God for? I've got everything I want. That's what self-sufficiency tells you. And weak faith doesn't pray. One of the reasons that you and I don't see the power of God in our lives is that we rely upon our own strength. And so we don't ask God for anything. We don't wait on him to intervene. And for those of you in this room that are praying people, thank you for your ministry to us. If you want to grow in your faith, be wary of relying upon your prior religious experience or your own self-sufficiency. Because we shouldn't be content with this weak faith. We're, we're, we're told to sort of grow and move on from, from milk to solid food in our own spiritual progression. However, I do want you to see from this passage, as we shift perspective from the disciples to the demon-possessed boy's father, I do want you to see something very beautiful here, and we can't miss it. Weak faith, when directed towards Jesus, is enough for healing. Let me tell you what I mean by this. Uh, let's pause and reflect a little bit as we think about this, the father of this demon-possessed boy. Think about what his life would have been like. The passage tells us that he was like this way since he was a child, since he was born. The boy is mute, he cannot speak. The boy is deaf, he cannot hear. He has some sort of spirit that is torturing him, that is, that is forcing him to convulse and, and foam at the mouth uh, like an epileptic fit. He's thrown into fires. He's thrown into water. Uh, this, this is self-destructive. And the father hears that Jesus is near. 
that Jesus is in town. And he brings this boy in in desperation, looking to Jesus for healing, and he sees his disciples gathered around and religious leaders gathering around, and, and he brings them, but Jesus isn't there. And so he he gives his boy to his disciples and and they can't do anything about it. They're they're trying, but nothing is happening. You feel the weight of what is going on in this man's life. He's at the end of his rope. And Jesus shows up. And when Jesus shows up at this point, the the man is not even sure that Jesus can do anything about it. Do you ever wonder this in your own life? Can Jesus actually help me? with what I'm going through. And he says, you know, if you can, if you can have compassion on me, help me, is what the Father says. And you notice in the passage, Jesus kind of hones in on this, and he says, if you can, all things are possible for those who believe. Now, this is one of these verses we have to be careful not to read out of context. You see it now in the context of this story. We can't just lift that out and say, Anything is possible if I, you know, if I pray for that sports car enough. Like anything, anything can come. That's, that's not what it's saying here. It's, what it's saying is that nobody is too far gone. No problem is too big. Nothing is too heavy for the Savior. Nothing. Anything is possible if you believe. Now, Jesus is, is uncovering this struggle to believe in the Father. He says, the question is not if I'm able, but do you believe And that's the question for us. That's the eternal question. That's the question of the gospel. Jesus is able. He is enough. Do you believe that? And the father says, I believe. Help my unbelief. Like, I I do, but I don't. Do you believe Jesus is enough? Do you believe Jesus can take care of you? Yes, but sometimes I'm not so sure. And Jesus says, this is enough. He casts out the demon. He shows his amazing power. It looks like the boy is dead, but he lifts him up. He heals him. This is, this is language of the resurrection. The boy is dead, and now he is risen. He's made him new. And this is this, this whisper of the resurrection life that Jesus is bringing to any who will believe. And the father's reply to Jesus, it's, it's so honest, isn't it? It resonates with us. Does that not feel human to you, right? I believe, but I don't believe. I, I believe, but help my unbelief. I have faith, but I've got a lot of questions. I've got a lot of doubts. I mean, I want you to see the beauty of the gospel in this man's weak faith. Because we need to really consider, it's not, it's not a strong superhero-like faith that delivers us. It's a strong savior, that delivers us. A weak and doubting faith in Jesus brings healing and life. A strong and confident faith in something else leads to chaos and pain and no healing. And that's what's happening here with the healing of the demon-possessed boy. So if you don't know anything about Christianity this morning, you need to hear that weak faith, faltering faith, if honestly directed at Jesus, is saving faith. And there's some of you here this morning that that need to hear that your doubts and your questions are normal, that they're supposed to happen because you're a human being living in a fallen world. We all feel the brokenness of life on planet Earth. You're not perfect. You've got questions. Bring them to Jesus. Bring them to him. Be honest with them. Say like the Father did, I believe, but help me. 
You may, have, you may have heard of a chapter of the Bible in, in Hebrews chapter 11 that gives a list of some of the most faithful people in the Bible. It's called, sometimes people call it the Hall of Faith. But what's interesting is if you look at them, uh, they're not superstars at all. If you read their stories, this is a list of people who've done terrible things. They're murderers. They're cheaters. They're liars. They're people who have turned their backs on God. They've run away only to come back with their hats in their hands. But they do come back. And their faith is held up as examples for us because that's who we are. We're we're a group of people in the church who are looking to find healing for our own brokenness. We believe, but we don't. Lord, help our unbelief. Uh, I don't know if you guys remember those 90s phenomena paraphernalia called called mood rings. It's kind of these kind of gold plastic rings with a jewel and it would change colors. I think they're making a little bit of a comeback in Gen Z. It's like analog, so cool. Um, So... You've got this ring on and it changes colors. Like if it's yellow, it's like you're excited or kind of anxious. Or if, you know, if it's, if it's you know, red, you're feeling passionate. Or if it's blue, you're feeling bluesy. And there's this, there this ring that you could wear. And I was talking with some Stanford students and I was like, wouldn't it be great if we could come up with an app? With an app and you know, some sort of wearable biotech ring that could map the spiritual progress of your own heart. Right? Totally ridiculous scenario. Like, wouldn't it be great if, if you could kind of collect the data on how your faith has been over the last year? What, like, what were you feeling today? Were you feeling confident that Jesus has risen from the dead? Or were you feeling like, I don't know if I can do this anymore? And wouldn't that be interesting to sort of be one of these people that, you know, have run the whole race of the Christian faith uh, at the end of your life and look back and be able to kind of chart the data on the condition of your soul on, on any given day or moment. What do, you, what do you think that picture would show? Well, uh, there, what, what I want you to know is, according to the Bible, um, most of your life is not going to be spent on the mountaintop where you can clearly see the splendid, radiant glory of Jesus where you have no doubts about who he is and what he's up to and how amazing he is. But there are many, many, many days, if we could pull up the data, where you will spend in the valley, where you have spent in the valley, struggling with doubt, where your faith feels weak, where you're trying to rely on your proximity to Jesus, your history with Jesus, your experience, but not leaning on Jesus himself. A lot of the time it will feel like and will feel like the demon-possessed boy's father, who in one minute we believe and in another minute we're not so sure. But what I want you to see from Mark chapter 9 is that despite the imperfection of our faith, despite our doubts, our tossing and our turning, when weak faith is directed at Jesus, the smallest dose of faith, if honestly directed towards Christ, brings cosmic healing and resurrection life to you personally and to the whole community. And this is good news. This is the gospel. We believe. Help our unbelief. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you for the truth that Jesus is the radiant Son of God in glory. And we thank you for times where we have gotten a glimpse of that. Lord, show us Jesus again today. But Lord, we know and come to you as people who are so often in the valley. And we ask that you will direct our gaze to Jesus. Enlarge our faith. Help us to believe, but help us in our unbelief. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.